0: You are listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory. To find out more about the open-access electronic journal Culture Machine, visit www.culturemachine.net.
1: Today we will be speaking to Joanna Zelinska and Sarah Kemba, focusing on their recently published co-authored monograph entitled Life After New Media, Mediation as Vital Process. Joanna Zalinska is a cultural theorist and a fine art photographer, and she is Professor of New Media and Communications at Goldsmiths University of London. Her publications include Bioethics in the Age of New Media and the Ethics of Cultural Studies. Sarah Kemba is a writer and academic, and she is a Professor of New Technologies of Communications at Goldsmiths University of London. Her publications include Cyberfeminism and Artificial Life, and the recently published novel Optical Effects of Lightning.
0: So to start off with an introductory question. In your book, Life After New Media, you propose a non-humanist reading of media, where, drawing among studies on Bergson, you focus on the liveness or vitality of media. Instead of seeing media as distinct objects, you propose we focus on processes of mediation and our entanglements and emerging with them. So could you explain what this means in terms of rethinking human agency?
2: Um, I mean this is a very exciting question for us because I think it underpins to a large extent what we were trying to do both in this particular book and our, our, our larger kind of media philosophical projects around kind of theory um, human non-human belonging and becoming um, and I would like to turn your question kind of back at yourselves and ask if you're posing a question could you explain what this means in terms of rethinking human agency I want to ask who is it that is supposed to do the rethinking, and by posing that question, we are always already in the middle of a dilemma and a kind of anthropocentric dilemma. So even though we we are in the book trying to outline kind of non-anthropocentric mode of thinking and understanding the media, we are also wary of certain uncritical turns towards uh, so-called posthumanism or non-anthropocentrism that don't give enough of an account of the position of the human who is supposed to do the turning. Now, we are in agreement with, for example, object-oriented philosophy people and others who are claiming it's not all about us. Of course, it's not all about us. And of course, there are bigger, wider, broader processes in which things become in the so-called the world. However, there is also a certain process, which which we could call the human differential, in which the human differentiate him or herself from the other kind of objects, sets of relations, through to historical practices, one of them being storytelling, the other one being philosophizing. And I think, to a large extent, in many current uh, uh, pieces of research that draw, uh, in media studies, in philosophy, that draw on so-called post-humanist or post-anthropocentric theory, that moment of uh, reflecting on the human differential is kind of, uh, remains a blind spot, mm-hmm. is uh, is kind of overlooked. So to wrap it up quickly, uh, that difference, even if we agree that the uh, difference between humans and non-humans, be it animals, machines, or other kind of beings, entities that are in pr- the process of emerging with us, against us, outside us, even if that relationship uh, has been put into question in the sense that the typical signal points of the human, such as language, uh, tool use and emotions, have been found against the species barrier, there is something around the historical practices of storytelling and philosophizing that are necessary. Uh, to be kind of brought back into the fold, reflected on. And this is precisely the starting point of many of the reflections in life after new media. What does it mean for a kind of human who remains entangled, who is in the process of becoming, to propose a certain mode of philosophizing, theorizing about media, about mediation? What kind of moment?
3: And that's when this will bring us to the end. Yeah, I mean... the the short the, sh- the short answer is it, yeah this is not a humanist account of media and and partly it takes issue with humanist accounts of media and neither is it in a teleological sense or perhaps in in a, in a, a other than problematic sense a post humanist account of media and mediation either I mean within within uh, if you know, like mainstream media and cultural studies one of the things we wanted to try and do as well as uh, avoiding an opposition between objects media objects and media processes was to avoid that kind of rather stale and predictable dichotomy of technology and use, of, of technicism versus humanism, and it's really going nowhere except backwards and forwards. Right. Um, so that you know, and and that doesn't that's not predicated on a rejection of uh, um, a notion that we use media because that would be absurd. I mean, and it's still viable for us to talk about the uses of photography and medicine, for example. Um, but you know, as, as as you know, increasing numbers of new media theorists have begun to point out this this notion of use, this kind of very anthropological, very instrumental reading of technology simply doesn't work if you accept that we're in a kind of new media and technology environment that we don't simply enter as preformed subjects and then leave again kind of untouched, as it were, that we're already kind of constituting this environment. Um, So that was one of the kind of key things we wanted to do and I think for me as well, the, the problem with humanism had to do, uh, um, in the book and in the course that the, the book is based on, with a fetishization of objects. I think you can only fetishize actually, if you take that kind of uh, uh, um, very kind of divided uh, relationship between humans and their objects. And, and the, the, the big, big, big problem of projection when we're talking about technology, which, you know, we've, we've done, uh, we've acknowledged through a certain amount of psychoanalytic thinking you know but for me it's so, it's so rife within uh, debates on technology that we that we get trapped in what is effectively a kind of cultural as well as psychological dynamic of splitting and projection you know in a very we need more Klein right we need to I think we need to do a bit more Klein I think it comes up every now and then um so that we're almost kind of like we need to grow up a bit more in relationship to our attitude with media and technology which means kind of assimilating uh, um mixed we say mixed feelings about what media and technology are
2: and it's also, um, so the book is in a way kind of arises out of a certain suspicion on our part towards proclamations about what we have supposedly become mm-hmm. now in that process. In that moment of the now and that no longer, no more, uh, we are now somewhere, right. those kind of temporal indicators that supposedly point to a radical ontological change in the status of the human is something that is troubling us. So we're much more interested in a more speculative, more gentle I suppose, uh, kind of manners of recalibrating our own human vision uh, to to try and grasp, to understand where it emerges from and what it is entangled with, what we are entangled with, how we emerge, how... But last but not least, it's also recognising, as Sarah said, that there are not only processes, that processes stabilise into objects. So there isn't just mediation. Of course, mediation stabilises into media. And media could be named as kind of historically... Historically significant temporary stabilizations of matter uh, that ma- matter to other humans and non humans. And obviously, then a lot of kind of co- contemporary analyses of those media, of those stabilizations in terms of use, in terms of. Uh, Um, in terms of power relations, in terms of post-hegemony, in terms of everything else, they do have a kind of uh, validity and relevance. But it's more the question of thinking about what happens, how do they stabilize? And what happens if that media object becomes uh, unstabilized, not even destabilized, but unstabilized, and returns to that kind of process of mediation? So, you know, stabilization, such as capitalism, Facebook, the human, the dinosaur, do
3: matter. But we kind of know that they are only temporary. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of encroaching a little bit into one of the questions I think you've got coming up. But you know, I, It's partly about saying we can't really have this kind of relational theory of media and mediation without a political economy of media. We're not, you know, that makes, that's uncomfortable, um, but it's also, for us, really necessary. Okay,
1: thank you. Thank you. Well, I think that leads us really nicely into my next question. Really. Um, and especially, Joanna, you're, you're turning the, question, the first question around onto us. Um, there's a sense of responsibility that we have as as uh, interviewers, and in the book you, you make a sort of Bergsonian inflected demand to ask better questions. Um, clearly, that comes onto us now as we as we're doing this podcast, and um, it sort of raises questions in my own mind. What's this podcast for? What does it do? Um, and you know, is it simply here to extract extract some facts from, from you as the author, some things about your book? Um, I guess I'm thinking to, to sort of treat it simply as a book, as a static object, which just contains your ideas, denies this vitality that you're talking about. Um, and if I put that into a, into a question, uh, I suppose is there a sense that this podcast and this interview are, are an extension of the book or or even part of it, maybe? Um, and is there a sense that we as interviewers, but also your your other readers and your other commentators... Are we sort of your collaborators always. as well?
3: Yeah. you were. I mean, I, this is a great question because, we, of course, you always were. I mean, you know, not, not just now, but before. And, the, and before the book was imagined, you were our collaborators. I so mean, you know, in a more pedestrian way, we, we were quite clear about that, I think, in the acknowledgements mm-hmm. of the book. You know, it, it wasn't a quite a pedestrian way, which was to say, you know, this is a, this is a book that comes off a course um, from various teaching that we've been doing over the past goodness knows how long. You know, we've been involved in this field and we've been talking to you and you, you became the course that we taught and therefore, you know, Student Input became the, the book that we wrote. Um, and yes, this, of course, is an extension you know, of that book, is effectively a postscript to that book, and there will be many more postscripts to that book. But the book was never bounded. Um, you know, it, it's there in its its hard copy form at the moment. But you know, we don't we don't want to forget. Uh, uh, um, you know, that the book was never a kind of entirely discrete entity, uh, um, according to you know, critical theorists of the nineteen seventies. You know, and, and those those issues around how books were extended through. Uh, uh, um, you know, in, in interactive so-called networks at the time is no less relevant um, than it is now. So we can't kind of suddenly imagine that we have a fluid book in a, in a digital era where we had a fixed one in an analogue era. That doesn't help. Uh, but yes, and, you know, uh, all those things about companion species that, <laughs> that kind of I go along with it and also the, and also the kind of qualifier that that doesn't, that doesn't mean symmetry, that we remain authors of this book. And, you know... Uh, um, we don't transfer agency to, to readers in the way that perhaps we imagine would, would have happened yeah. um, some decades ago. And what was so terribly wrong, of course, with those debates on um, hypertext as a kind of literalization about that alleged transfer of agency from author to reader, I mean, we can do better than that.
2: Because yeah, the book is kind of, let me just come in here, because the book is suspended in that kind of tension. Uh, on kind of on the one hand, we do recognize the historical and cultural value of certain temporary stabilizations of mediation—things that emerge as media, things such as a book and a, as a podcast—and these kind of stabilizations carry a great value for us as scholars, as academics, as you know, humans living at <laughs> a particular historical moment where you know we've grown up with certain objects, we have a certain affinity kind of with them and fondness for them. Uh, and but as your question points out, these things always exist in a network of dynamic relations. So of course, the book is never finished, and we don't need to go to our book to get the sense of that. I mean, we can look at, you know, classic texts such as Roland Barthes, from work to text, for example, to get that sense of the inherent productivity of, of any kind of text, be it uh, kind of textual, visual, or, or you know, using other kind of forms of media. Um, it's interesting also because you've sent us a number of questions and your focusing, the things you're highlighting about the book are also very interesting because it, it opens up a certain generous, hospitable reading, but also the kind of reading that we are perhaps surprised by, thinking, oh, it's interesting, they've picked up on this, on things such as human agency, the limits of the book, uh, rethinking media studies and the notion of the cut that we'll be talking about later. and. For us, these were obviously important, but there were lots of other things. I mean, ethics, the whole there is a strong ethical dimension to, to doing scholarship in that way. Uh, there is a the notion of critical attention that maybe we'll say something about. There's also the notion of collaboration, and that, for us, was important. Doing that book as a, as a generally shared project, and in that sense, that book is still in the process of becoming for us. The thing is, it started something, and it kind of continues. And there were many predecessors, such as, you know, Sixth and Clermont's The Newly Born Woman, uh, Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand plateaus and lots of others, not just philosophically, but also kind of methodologically, if you like, in terms of what happens when you get one and one you get a legion, you know, you get yeah, more yeah, than two, yeah. and there is that moment of productivity which opens up possibilities in thought and in doing. So the book also does things to us, I think, and for us. It's done things for us, uh, with us, hopefully it does something to others. So we're very grateful for people kind of picking it up as a mode of shared production. But we're also, I mean, very excited about opening up, creating that kind of more speculative, more playful mode of doing um, media theory as a form of kind of media production, producing it in the process and opening up that kind of possibility. Of course, we are not the only ones opening up the possibility of interesting, critical, creative, ethical media production. Those possibilities pre-exist as we borrow, we kind of, we acknowledge, we draw on, and then we kind of go with that further, while at the same time recognizing the institutional, academic uh, stability of that object we conventionally refer to as the book that carries kind of the names of two authors on them, attached to an academic institution, and that then involves kind of generous interviewers like yourselves into a discussion about it. But feel free
0: to feel free to be less generous. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Uh, So, Sarah, Joanna, um, your fascinating text really seems to speak well beyond what we've already talked about, the conventional notions of media, as it does uh, beyond the discipline of media studies. So for you, mediation seems to demand a recognition of the connectivity, perhaps even the inseparability of conventional disciplines. So you do consider teams that are common within media studies, such as the credit crunch as a media event, for example. Um, These are supplemented by the study of areas classically off-limits for media scholars, such as uh, the Large Hadron Collider uh, and face transplant surgery. And Sarah, for instance, you have previously written about your suspicion towards the notion of the two cultures, where the sciences and the humanities are characterized as hostile opponents. So how does this current project, and so your articulation of mediation in particular, relate to this idea? And why is it important for you to extend the study of media into fields that cultural theorists have tended to avoid, and perhaps even been barred from entering? If I can give a really flippant
3: answer to that <laughs> before we get going, um, I was partly institutional. I mean, just try, trying to follow on from Joanna's point earlier on. You know, we've always been involved in the wider world of, you know, biotechnology and bioethics and science and technology studies and feminism, and always were in a relatively marginal relationship to mainstream media and cultural studies. Um, I'm not sure that we were necessarily looking for bridges, but the bridges came, right? The bridges came through teaching digital media for, you know, uh, uh, 10 years, 15 years, um, and through, you know, or in as far as we accept processes of convergence and remediation, or technological convergence and remediation. So we, we had to deal increasingly... With a coming together of information and communication and biotechnology, so that for us was probably always there, but it was coming more and more and more apparent, you know, through through developments of smart media and and uh, you know uh, uh, um, virtual environments and all the rest of it. So you know, it, it just it, you know, it's something that I argued and have been arguing um, since the the book on cyber feminism that science and technology. Are, have always been our business as kind of media sc- scholars and are increasingly our business. But that has, for me, you know, it, it got, I, I often pick up on um, Donna Haraway's uh, uh, um, interview in How Like a Leaf, where she says that, you know, literacy and biology is something you kind of have to do across the board now, whether you're in health or management or whatever, and, and, and really was surprised that media wasn't on the list. But for me also... I'm not sure that it is a question of literacy. I, I feel really uncomfortable with the notion of literacy in science, given that this is a historically very paternalistic, very top-down, sc- schooly type of uh, concept, and um, it's really, really not what, what what we mean. I think that there is a kind of imperative, uh, um, an ethics, a, a sort of responsibility to to deal with what's happening. You know, to take on these kind of messy mixtures that are going on between the disciplines that we, you know, uh, uh, make these artificial uh, <laughs> uh, premature cuts in, shall we say. And, and, and so to listen and to, and to take account of and to be therefore responsible to, I think is very, very important to me. But that doesn't mean uh, you join it on its terms. It doesn't mean that you engage uncritically with these fields. Far from it. But neither does it necessarily mean that you're, you can be comfortable and settled and happy in your relationship of opposition to it. So the two cultures, science wars... Um, Framework for me was completely redundant uh, when I was doing the the research on artificial life. I could see how stale it was to have people doing, quote, sociobiology and computational clothing and then feminists like me, (laughs) with their big boots on, going, no, 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 we don't want you to do this. Um, You know, that it was actually much more productive to to get closer, actually, to get closer to it, to be, yes, a bit contaminated by it, to be much more um, involved in it without necessarily taking it on on its own terms at all. Um, and so literacy, I think, would be a problem uh, that I'd have to sort of highlight. But at the same time, not doing this, um, you know, making these kind of artificial distinctions so that, you know, in our field, you couldn't possibly do something like talk about the LHC. Uh, I mean, goodness, you're missing a trick, right? Um, how, there's no way you can not do that, I think, in our schema, that you have to recognize that actually in that in that sort of si- big science project, media and mediation were, were right up front as the kind of crucial for us, crucial problems. The the main, the most interesting thing that was going on there was the mediation of a big bang. It wasn't so much the big bang in itself. And yes, we can learn about big bangs, and we and we do, and we did. Um, but but you know that that's not about sort of just doing physics. It is also about sort of looking at how these uh, um, fields interact. It, disciplinarity. I don't know. I mean, you know, the the way that we institutionalize disciplines is a problem. Multidisciplinarity is certainly not a, a solution to it. I think it's. An accumulation strategy i 'm not even that sure about transdisciplinarity sometimes, not if it means not if it means that you obscure or elide in any way the place from which you are speaking mm-hmm. um, um, so i 'm not sure on, on that we 're making a stance on disciplinarity mm-hmm. we we 're recognizing um, that the the world of media and technology is a very complex one, and that you know okay you know historically. We haven't, we in media and cultural studies haven't been that good at, talk, at talking about technology. Not if you do this technology use split, not if you not if you divide technicism and humanism, we haven't. And, you know, there's been an allergy to us kind of going anywhere near something like biology. Um, and that has changed in, in various disciplines over the years. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that you know, clearly for us, it was organised as well around specific events that we wanted to, um, you know look at in terms of processes of mediation where mediation al- already encompasses physics uh, as well as it does you know TV.
2: But we should also probably say something about certain some institutional or counter-institutional imperative that underpins the book, which is was a desire to try and think slightly differently about ways of doing media studies. I mean, as you know, media studies and media and communications in Britain is very much written into the kind of communications model, which is more social sciences driven, which asks slightly different questions, which uses slightly different so-called research methods. So we try to bring kind of to the table, on the one hand, this kind of encounter between kind of arts and sciences. but On the other hand, they kind of more arts and humanities agenda. Was a kind of media theory and continental philosophy, and a kind of feminist engagement and a playfulness around all these questions, just to try and see what we can do. So the book ends with, but also in a way is as a whole a form of a creative media manifesto. It's a kind of manifesto that doesn't tell people what to do. So obviously we're kind of borrowing here from Haraway and lots of others, the kind of revolutionaries who feel an imperative, a political and an ethical imperative. To to do something, while at the same time being very wary of imposing any kind of model. And uh, so with a nod to Beckett, we are proposing this kind of uh, manifesto that consists of, you know, three imperatives, ask better, cap better, and then try again, fail again, fail better. So this imperative is against the instrumentalism of kind of individualism of a lot of kind of academic practices that we can see kind of uh, incarnated today in the kind of academ- academic model against the goal-oriented logic of grant proposals, oh, yes. against the kind of three-year PhD program that you have to know what you're going to do at the beginning of, of writing, and then you just kind of execute the software PhD <laughs> thing that you arrive with a ready-made project at the end. So it's kind of thinking against and across some of this. Um, um, the process of creation, and I think the fact that, it, were, you know, while writing the book, we were both undergoing uh, the kind of opening up of our own disciplinary practices, so, you know, trained as as philosophers or as literary scholars, and in Sarah's case, we both wanted to go and and play and get our hands dirty, and we did it in the way when Sarah's, you know, got a lit- kind of literary agent and uh, started, you know, started, well, she's been writing fiction for a while and published her novel and short stories and I kind of started pursuing my kind of art practice, especially photographic practice, more seriously, and got a kind of masters in in photography and started exhibiting work. But doing all of this was interesting because we were very wary, and it made us realize we didn't just want to make a shift from theory to practice, Mm -hmm. but it got us uh, to to question that kind of relation. Again, we are not the first ones to be doing this, but also kind of uh, rejuvenated our love for rigorous theory in a way. So it's we're thinking what does it mean to do media studies kind of really not just between these two modes of thinking but really kind of uh, which is both theoretical and practical is philosophizing about media a form of media practice you know how can you make media with, uh, with uh, Photoshop with a camera and with words at the same time, is language a medium of course I mean language is a medium uh, so it's not about some kind of you new know, incessant neurotic reinvention, a constant seeking of the new, it's also working with and through media stabilizations and recognizing again going back to the earlier point, recognizing the value of certain you know traditional traditional forms of media of culture that have a certain uh, we have a certain fondness for respect for which would be you know this is why the, the the media we are working with are kind of you could say conventional fiction or photography for example. Yet at the same time, adopting kind of taking on board the framework which is recognizable, which has a particular history in media studies or more broadly in the thing we call culture we're also trying to work within them with their constraints against their stabilizations, looking for kind of kinship between those particular recognisable models of the enactments of mediation and other things on the borders how can we gently kind of unwork that whole theory practice thing, how can we make words differently, how can you make things differently? Mm-hmm.
3: So the, the discipline thing I think is it, it precisely is kind of less of, becomes less of an issue in relationship to that, less of an issue in relationship to you know playfully but also quite provocatively wanting to keep open this question of modes and methods of critique and making it by embodying it, less, because we weren't comfortable, didn't see where anyone else should be, um, less comfortable to be a sociologist, less comfortable to be a media scholar, less comfortable to be a theorist, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, Joanna mentioned some of the writing. I think that the, our book, as well as some of the, the kind of so-called fiction that I do, which is, you know, uh, it's a loose term, I guess, for some of it, um, you know, is deliberately kind of looking at us, and saying you know is this really what you think you're doing you know describing these experiments which we could call the whole kind of field of you know complex environment of media and technology as if you were outside it as if you could describe it as an ethnographer for example or as a so you know as more broadly as a social scientist or just as a philosopher right none of these positions are, are positions where we can afford to settle even though we, you know, we may come from one rather than another, even though we may weigh, may want to be responsible to them, and we've tried to be responsible to all of the uh, various kind of techniques or methods that we've that we've taken on, but with a deliberate aim to sort of to say, look, you know, not prescriptively, but for critical sort of political reasons, you you know, you don't want to say, I do interviews because I'm a sociologist. Mm-hmm. Right, so we, the, the Bergson was useful for us because it made us think more about ask the right question, and then we'll care about what happens with the, you know, the how afterwards. It is a secondary question, and therefore it's not known. That right notion Isn't of loss,
2: response and responsibility is quite important as well. I think it underpins to a large extent a lot of what we are doing here. That we're hoping that this is a project that emerges as a response to what's going on already. And partly, I think we started both by saying we actually don't know. So the book is also a turning away from a, the more general kind of ontological execution of knowledge that's mm. so visible in many um, areas of cultural theory and philosophy at the moment. Well, I like would argue so, And, and I, I blame so much Deleuze and Guattari because I'm very fond of their work, but many kind of... Uh, Poor readings, I suppose, I would say, ungenerously, of Deleuze and Guattari. Well, there is that kind of, the, a certain hesitation, playfulness, being on the verge, uh, and the kind of almost hysterical hesitation of writing kind of gets killed off, and the readings of Deleuze and Guattari but gets picked up is this kind of uh, neurotic affirmation that kind of supposedly bans scholars from critique and pushes them to move on. Again we are returning to this notion of moving on, moving on with the times kind of such a neoliberal imperative. So a lot of theorists now kind of um, exhort you to move on and to move on away away from critique and more towards uh, more affirmative modes of thinking. And again I'm not quite sure about that kind of dualism. Uh, I think I've, we both in the book we recognize we've got a lot of fondness for critique as a very particular mode of doing knowledge um, And uh, so what we're proposing is this notion of critical attention. And we're working with that notion of critical attention, which is much more corporeal, which is much more sensuous, which works affectively as well as cognitively. We recognize that, you know, human cognition is not the be all and end all. Mm -hmm. That too, it's imperfect. It's probably just the tip of the iceberg. However, it kind of works again, it was a particular historical tradition of asking certain questions. We can move with that, we can try and ask better questions, but that kind of recognition of a tradition of critique, because if we are making a postulate that we are just moving on with flows of mediation and we are moving towards an affirm- affirmative mode of doing whatever, I mean, that's still a critical position, which is one which is not very well thought out. So this is why I think if we were to have a rubric under which we position the book, it would be one of critical vitalism. For many people, there would be a paradox and a set you know of two incompatible terms for us it's a kind of more responsible maybe a kind of a slower and uh, way of thinking uh, speculating messing around with media and mediation but one that also recognizes a particular historical philosophical trajectory yeah. from which we come
3: yeah there were there were there were trajectories that that, that fed into that Position which argues, in effect, that you know, critical attention has little to do with sociology per se, or with philosophy per se, or with being a theorist or a practitioner. Mm. But at the same time, it, we, we came from somewhere. Um, mm. you know, in fact, I think we may have forgotten where that was. Actually, I sometimes know. do wonder. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was kind of a strange mixture of you know literary, philosophical, feminist mm. uh, traditions, which have very clearly fed in. Um, to, to the ways in which we open up this question of critical vitalism and critical attention but to the ways and, and you know the, the allegiances that we have to these uh, directions, these modes uh, has a lot to do with their openness, has a lot to do with not necessarily moving from here to there um, but to remaining open to the question of what and how basically
0: Thank you
1: Thanks <clears throat> So on to our, <clears throat> so our last question um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the cut uh, In the book you bring together different types of cut the sort of visceral cut upon the body and you illustrate that with the work of Nina Sellers um, and you uh, you talk about the cut from more conventional media where it's sort of the imperative to cut in film um, but these are connected with a notion of cutting as, as ways of knowing and um, and when I look at those images of, of Sellers' work in the book, um, I'm struck by a sense of violence. Um, it's something I pull away from. It's something quite abject. Um, and I wondered if this violence, this cutting into the body, is commensurate with uh, a violence in in knowing, in the act of knowing, um, and where objects are stilled and cut out from uh, this vital dynamic process and whether that violence is is equivalent mm-hmm. in any way.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have to be careful to make... a uh, you know, to introduce the possibility of an kind of ontological and ethical distinction between different practices of cutting. But at the same time, we shouldn't make this distinction too quickly. So this point about cutting ties in with our earlier discussion about critical vitalism. I think for that vitalism to be critical, uh, we need to introduce and maintain that notion of the cut. And the cut, as we argue in the book, and it's something, you know, for me, it's a concept I've worked with them in my other, um, other writings about kind of bioethics as well it's a notion that um introduces and throws light on a particular set of practices that arrange knowledge arrange language arrange media into these temporary stabilizations because there are not just processes that are not just flows flow stabilized and even if these stabilizations are temporary they have uh Political, ethical consequences—they've got material effects, and so it's basically a call to give an account of those cuts and maybe, maybe to make better cuts as well. Uh, when speaking about the images by Nina Sellers that illustrate, or oh, the kind of—they don't just illustrate the the the, the 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 chapter; they kind of appear as a certain. Um, uh, they appear as an uh, one possible enactment of that practice of cutting. What was interesting for me about Sellers' work in that particular uh, in that particular series, and i should explained it's a series called Oblique. It's a series of photographs taken during the surgery undergone by performance artist Stelarc, who is having an extra ear implanted on his arm. However, in the photographs in the series, you just see a close up, and they are done in the tradition of kind of uh, you know Rembrandt-like painting. So you can think about a Baroque kind of uh, chiaroscuro palette. So there is violence and also there is this kind of, of form of beauty. Beauty, again, I'm referring to a very conventional understanding of aesthetics that refers to a particular set of practices. So there is that, but what, what kind of cutting occurs is a double layer of cutting. There's obviously a cutting of an arm, but that's at one remove. But what happens with Sela, she's cutting the, 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 the series of operations, the series of occurrences happening in the, in the operating theater with a camera with a lens framing them and inscribing them in a particular trajectory of images of cutting so there is that double practice of cutting so in a way we we'll understand that these images might provoke a certain repulsion a revulsion in the in the viewer i think they also highlight the inevitably violent Element of cutting that perhaps is inherent to any uh, any practice, any level of, and um, any practice, any act of of trying to uh, mold matter into something. And as I said earlier, I think we have to emphasize that there, you know, different practices of cutting are not ethically ontologically equivalent. There is, of course, a difference between you know slashing someone's face with a knife and cutting something with cut and paste in Word or with you know with Photoshop. At the same time, that moment, that whole Process of intrusion, of kind of modulating, making, remaking, making choices, a kind of decisions around inclusion and exclusion. Some of these decisions are conscious, others are less conscious, are kind of much more corporeal, much more, much more propriocentric. Um, this they kind of point towards that um, necessity. Of enacting in, in what Karen Barad calls an agential cat, a resolution within a phenomena of the inherent ontological and semantic indeterminacy. So the cat can be creative as well as violent. So even if we return to the notion of violence, then we have to perhaps bear in mind what the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas called good violence, which is a way of, of minimizing violence. We, if we recognize that in, violence is inherent to the processes of self-constitution, to the processes of constitution of the world, of what we call the world, of constitution of knowledge, then we perhaps have a responsibility to kind of work through those processes, to make sure that these cuts perhaps don't cut as deep, to see what's on the other side of the
3: cut, if you like. Yeah, I mean, you know, we actually came to this question, pr- probably from opposite sides of the cut, <laughs> mm. <laughs> except that there aren't really opposite sides of the cut philosophically. But if there were, we did. I mean, you know, for me, uh, uh, cutting was something I was kind of reading through Bergson as, you know, imminent, necessary, inevitable, morally ambiguous. Uh, Joanna came at it more from a kind of transcendentalist kind mm. of uh, approach. But, <clears throat> I mean, for what we shared was that when you trans transfer... Uh, a notion of agential cutting to kind of nature cultures. There's no way you can posit that cuts are things that just happen, right? Um, so then it becomes a question of how you do cutting better, you know. So cuttings for us, you know, is, is a kind of... Uh, there's a temporality to it. This is what we get from the, the process kind of philosophy from Barad and, uh, and so on. Cuts cut things together and apart. It's, it's ongoing, uh, um, but it's also kind of fundamentally about separation and about individuation, and it's fundamentally... Necessary. Um, So then, the question is, how do you how do you cut not just uh, 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 temporarily, but in a timely way when those when those refer to slightly different slightly different dynamics? And you know, you know, that means also to not kind of accept premature kinds of cutting, so that things are given. You know, so that we can deal with discrete. Entities with what we call through a Bergsonian framework false divisions, human, machine, and nature, and all the rest, and all the rest of it. Uh, we, we, we want to suspend those cuts and kind of accept that the cutting will happen, that the cutting has to happen. Could we please do it a bit better um, than that? And that, I think that was one of the imperatives for us. And then, and I think if we if we think of cuts as to, as, as the creation of representations um, as well, which I we we were you know addressing in the book. Um, I, I think it, I think it's, it's also very important again to say that, you know, no, we can't stop doing this. You know, we can no more uh, stop representing than we can cutting and representation. I mean, there's a key issue uh, in any kind of visual medium uh, wow. re- field, um, you know, and, and I would, you know, I, I, we, I think it's very important that we, that we signalled that we, that we didn't agree with this sense that, you know, we're at the end of representation or, you know, we have to shift from representation to performativity. No, we, we saw in the context that we studied in the book like the credit crunch, like uh, the LHC and, and Abu Ghraib, even you know the, the fact that these 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 dynamics are held very very much in tension. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to acknowledge that tension. Of course we do because that's what we see you know happening, um, and and just to kind of you know always uh, um, um, consider how we, how we can um, intervene in a sense in in relationship to that and we, when
2: tension. we went to, to to bergson and then we went to deleuze uh, looking at the notion of kind of of duration i mean obviously there isn't just duration although so it's possible to read bergson and especially deleuze by focusing on that notion of coupage the cutting which is a uh, cutting of things which is so uh, which is so um, omnipresent, if you like, in a lot of Deleuze's writings, for example, and doesn't get picked up that much. There is still much more focus in a lot of interpretations, especially in cinema studies and film studies, on the kind of the movement, the flow, the... the, What interested us, I suppose, was uh, alongside those movements and flows was the moment of stoppage, when things come to a halt, when something happens. And in a way that... uh, I mean, Claire Colbrook, with her beautiful Mm -hmm. book, Deleuze and the Meaning of Life is someone who is reading Deleuze a, a little bit against the grain or maybe alongside Deleuze's own grain, I'd like to think, where she kind of points precisely to those moments of stoppage, when it's just almost a halt. I mean, in a way, I mean, Rosie Brydott is reading of, of Deleuze, who's this kind of last drink yeah. by, but one, that notion of almost kind of arriving at something, that they're hitting you're, you're hitting a certain wall, so that you know, things that happen within duration, you can call it thickenings, you can call it nodes and stabilizations, you you can use different vocabularies. We're obviously, in a way, kind of trading metaphors that right. obviously have materialities attached to them. But in a way, that is what is kind of important to us, that moment of uh, when, when cutting becomes a, a, an, an enforced and sometimes irresponsible, sometimes hysterical, sometimes panic-driven way of organising matter. And then how can we make sure these cats matter and then they have uh, the, the ethical consequences of which we can only um, be, for which we can only be responsible to a very small degree. I mean, it's obviously we are recognizing, going back to the first question, the limitations of the human who can do these cuts. Right. I mean, most of these cuts happen without us, and most of them happen to us as well, without our knowledge or possibility of controlling the situation. However, that kind of those rare moments in which we can perhaps do something within the limited set of dynamic relations we find ourselves in is what is of interest to us here so again it's kind of quite small quite minor speculative attempt to kind of look at these little incisions around seeing whether we can make them a little better a little either shallow shallow or deeper depending what we want to achieve
3: i think that the of the interventions that that we were consciously or otherwise making um, here was obviously to think more about um the ethics of mediation uh through decision making through cutting um rather than just kind of falling into a kind of more conventional way of talking about media ethics and that's something that you know joanna might want to say something uh, more about um it was i think it was very important to do that whilst not dismissing media ethics as irrelevant right (laughs) problematic for sure but but not irrelevant. We can't possibly say in the current climate, yeah. phone hacking and all the rest of it that you know that this this becomes relevant. Um, but I think the other thing that perhaps is more more challenging than that in, in what we were trying to do and that extends out to our to our other work, as you know our more extended <laughs> writing practices, was was this kind of understanding about ethic aesthetic as well as ethical cutting that actually you know this this book is. Um, is writing right? Mm. It is a form of writing. It is a, 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 a kind of story. It is, you know, in, in cutting across um, the divisions that, you know, I, I think are still residually held in a lot of these debates on agentual cutting and, and ethics. Which is, you know, I can talk about this from this kind of untrammeled position of, a, of an academic theorist in this field, right? Well, not so comfortably for us. And I think, you know, the, the the ways that we've engaged with that through photography or through fiction, where, believe me, cutting is a violent, <laughs> excessive process that have really uh, reflected... Ben's looking at me now through the window. He knows about this. Um, you know, that, that's, that's really cutting. You know, a- aesthetically, you have to engage. And those cuts are really... Uh, uh, contestations about, you know, what a government control over this entity is. Joanna says it's very, very limited. And, you know, aesthetic cutting cuts against... Uh, cuts that are to do with marketization, that are to do with commercialisation, that are to do with all sorts of uh, genres and conventions and expectations, and we uh, we want we're not shuffling those off. You know, readers of uh, um, books on media have certain kind of very legitimate expectations and, and, and assumptions about what we're going to do, and I, I do think that we still wanted to say to them, yeah, <laughs> but you know, this is this is also happening here. This other element of of, of of decision making which is to say to you oh, you know this this is this is something that that moves uh, a little bit there's a little bit nomadic across i mean and we were quite conservative in how we did it mm. i think in this book and we could have gone further and maybe next time we will <laughs> you know our manifesto was very saying right we, <laughs> we, had, we had we had pictures we had some bits <laughs> of stories um but but the point being that this is storied this is this is pictured mm. Mm.
2: so just to kind of follow up on that point to you about uh, ethics of mediation uh, this is not to say, as Sarah mentioned, that uh, we want to set ourselves against what conventionally gets described as media ethics, which is to a large extent a form of proceduralism, a way of resolving pragmatic problems to do with journalism, with the behaviour of journalists, and, you know, something that obviously has become very much the object of recent inquiries in Britain, with the Leveson inquiry and the excesses of the press and politicians. Uh, and we recognise the need to to have these codes of conduct and to have them in action and to have to make sure you know that there is there are forms of regulation so that's in proposing an ethics of mediation, we were trying to do something different. Again, to, to return to that idea of posing different questions, maybe better questions. It was a way of sketching out a different horizon for the ethical subjects and ethical problems. So, in a way, it's recognizing we don't yet know who the the decision-making subject is and whether the subject whether the notion of the decision is actually the the, the you know, central point of that notion of ethics that emerges. But if cuts are to be made, how can the human compromise a he as he or she is, emergent as he or she is, but the human was that human differential of storytelling and philosophy. How can the human mobilize that historical practice of reflecting on, uh, on values, and on the notion of the good, even questioning that notion? How can the human then... Uh, ascertain, you know, what's going on in a given moment and perhaps outline out, outline a better story about those moments, those relations and those cuts. So it's as little or as much as that. However, as we, you know, in the book we did it through looking at Facebook and trying to ask a question, not re- really, you know, is it good, is it bad, should we all now leave, is it a question of privacy or lack of privacy? But just try to propose, uh, if we are looking at it as an environment, if we suggested that we are all on Facebook no matter if we are, we are all Facebook even, to quote Trevor Schultz, no matter if we have an account on it or not, then what does it tell us about our relationality with media and us emerging? And what does it tell us about ethical subjects, ethical objects, ethical problems? What kind of processes do we look at and what kind of cuts do we make with this?
0: You are listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory. To find out more about the open access electronic journal, Culture Machine, visit www.culturemachine.net.